0: wake of the murder of George Floyd. America's streets filled with protesters in some of the largest demonstrations in the country's history. But three years later, very little concrete change has been achieved. My guest on the podcast today asks the question, what happened? Why did this mass social justice movement achieve so little? Freddie DeBoer is an American journalist. His new book is How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. Freddie DeBoer is my guest today on Lean Out. Freddie, welcome back to Lean Out. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to have you back on the program to kick off our fall season here at Lean Out. Your new book and the analysis you put forward in it that a lack of clear and obvious legislative goals dooms a movement. I think this is extremely timely analysis and very needed. So I want to start today in 2020 when we saw a flood of protesters take to the street in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. I remember interviewing a veteran radio journalist in D.C. who happened to be black. He was of the civil rights generation. He'd spent the day driving around marveling at the enormous multiracial crowds on the street, and he was incredibly moved by it. I was initially optimistic, but as you pointed out, very little concrete change came from this reckoning, one of the largest social justice movements in American history. We'll get into the specific threads that you pull in the book to look at why Um, drawing on both analysis and your experience of 25 years as a part-time organizer. But to start, Freddie, just set this up for us. In broad strokes, what happened?
1: Um, I think that the biggest thing that we have to say with the Black Lives Matter sort of component particularly, which obviously was the flashpoint of all these things, but as part of a broader, long-simmering discontent, is that there was just never really a policy ask. And the degree to which the policy asked ever coalesced around anything, it coalesced around defund the police. And defund the police had two problems with it. Uh, The first was that nobody knew what it meant. Nobody could uh, agree with uh, sort of on exactly what it meant. There were more extreme versions that the activist class was tending to use in the street. And then there was a sort of justification system that the media sort of used to sort of as I say in the book, stainwash Wash, uh, the demand to make it appear more uh, palatable to a normal audience, those were not in conflict with each other. So number one, nobody really knew what that meant. But number two, um, no matter how you defined it, defunding the police was extremely unpopular. Uh, and it was unpopular even among Black Democrats. So uh, again and again, as I quote in the piece, we found that in polling, Black Americans did not call for funding to the police, and that very often they called for more police presence in their neighborhoods. So it was a direct conflict between the activist class and the sort of Black street, you could say, the the average Black American. And, you know, this is hardly an unusual circumstance to sort of have a movement that is bedeviled by a lack of a clear sort of actionable policy goal. Occupy Wall Street, as I discussed at some length in the book, refused to ever have demands. Uh, And so it's hard to say what exactly Occupy did at all. It certainly was an inspiration for movements that came after it, but it had no particular direction and so correspondingly went nowhere. Um, But if you go back to, for example, the Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Movement was believed by many within the movement to sort of stall out in the mid to late 60s. Martin Luther King expressed frustration before his death that it seemed like the civil rights movement had become sort of aimless because they had accomplished two of their uh, biggest goals, which were the Voting Rights Act, uh, which protected black people's right to vote and made violating that right to vote a a federal crime, which meant that it would have to be uh, enforced by federal uh, agents and not by the local sheriff who would often be complicit in the act of restricting the vote for black people. And the Civil Rights Act, which was a big omnibus that uh, resulted in a dramatic reduction in segregation and uh, forcing Black people out of bases that had previously been white only. After that point, the Civil Rights Movement was perceived by many to sort of lose uh, lose momentum. And it's not a mistake that uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, early to mid 70s, the Black Power Movement sort of superseded the uh, Civil Rights Movement because there was such frustration with the fact that progress had seemed to have stalled out. So we don't want to uh, hang this problem on Black Lives Matter uniquely. I do, however, think that, you know, there could have been a much clearer sort of sense of what exactly, what was the immediate demand and how can we rally around that politically? In the book, I suggest that ending qualified immunity, which prevents uh, police from being held to account for acts of uh, police misconduct, it would have been a great goal to rally around. Mm.
0: And I'm I'm curious about the exact turning point for you, and when when you saw this, when you started to become more skeptical of 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 this movement as a whole. When when did that moment come for you?
1: I was skeptical from the beginning. I also went to the marches and marched. Right. I mean, I think that it's important that we be able to function as political beings on several different planes at once. Um, the demand was so righteous and the anger was so clear that I knew that uh, from the beginning there was a real lack of strategic sort of uh, analysis going on, that um, there was a lot of heat but very little light. I knew that there were real problems with the Black Lives Matter organizing vehicles because we had known that long before George Floyd was killed. But I also went out and marched and you know held signs and chanted and stuff like that for several weeks because – It was important in that moment to just mark the historical period. We wanted to say, like, when did I sort of know that this was not going anywhere? I think just on the the, the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, uh, there was a lot of sturm and drang and media attention. But by that point, it was fairly clear that the George Floyd justice and policing bill, which was seen by many uh, activists as sort of a watered down compromise bill, but was the best effort that we had at real comprehensive poli- uh, a real uh, policing reform, excuse me, uh, when that it was clear by that by the one year mark that that was not going anywhere. And uh, that to me was an, a, a message to say, well, the Democrats have technically uh, narrowly a federal trifecta uh, and you can't get you know this act passed that is seen by many people as a sort of watered down compromise bill. It's probably safe to say that at this point, the party's over. But it was due to the nature of this thing, when you don't have right a, a specific goal in mind, when no one can agree with the goal is, it's the nature of things not to sort of blow up in failure, but to just peter out. And that's what happened is that, you know, the uh, the movement, so, uh, such as it was, just gradually sort of came apart, the crowds in the streets got thinner and thinner and thinner, the polling momentum had sort of evaporated. So I, you know, I, I keep reminding people of this. There was a period about a month or so after George Floyd had been killed when even majorities of Republicans in polling were saying that they supported Black Lives Matter, which is remarkable. That was gone by now, and uh, nothing was really happening. And it, it, you know, what I had warned people was going to happen, in fact, had happened, which was that. It had all dissolved into, you know, new fellowships for black graduate students, new employee handbooks at defense manufacturers about, you know, sensitivity, solidarity statements from investment banks, things like that. Precisely the things that everyone said were not sufficient is pretty much all that we got.
0: Mm-hmm. And I want to dig now into the specific conversation around race. First of all, let's just start with this. You have a paragraph in the book that outlines what you want on the race issue. Stable homes for black people, clean and well-resourced schools, good medical care, employment, fair policing. I share all of all of those aims as well. I want all those things too. Um so I initially found it very odd that I was off put by this particular social justice movement and it took time to unpack and I think your book does the best job of this that I've seen yet. So first of all, there's this basic drift from the material and concrete to the immaterial and symbolic. I'm quoting you there. Then there's the left's resistance to internal debate. Then there's also the taboo on investigating or critiquing anything to do with BLM, which is problematic because billions were flowing into that movement. you got to be able to talk about this. Then, of course, the fact that defund the police was not popular, as you said, and specifically in the communities it was meant... To protect. But then there was also these specific ideas about race that were being put forward. Um, and particularly this weird fixation on white emotion, which you've referred to here as white psychodrama. So race for dinner a controversial company that hosts dinner parties to interrogate white privilege. One of its white employees, Lisa Bond, made a comment you quote in the book. The idea that white people need to go out and make these big external actions, that's just white supremacy. The internal work is the hard work and it never ends. Walk me through why this is, as you put it in the book, essentially your worst nightmare of an idea.
1: Sure. You... Uh, work at a company that is staffed with people who uh, are filled with racist sentiment, you as a black person are staffed work at that, that, that company, it is likely that that will result in some sort of active discrimination uh, against you, right? The problem there is not the sentiment, it's the discrimination, right? If on the other hand, those all those people are so disciplined or so fearful of a, of a lawsuit that they don't ever commit uh, act of discrimination against you uh, which is entirely possible in corporate america where you have so many legal restrictions in place that are designed specifically to avoid indemnity of any kind that don't want to be um that are you know designed to make sure that you don't commit a identity offense that's going to result in a lawsuit and bad publicity then it just makes no difference whether people are filled with racial animus or not the problem is like the specific material expression of racism in your day-to-day life, right? So let's say that we have that company and that all those people are filled with racist sentiment and they all buy copies of Robin DiAngelo's book uh, and they all read it and it uh, magically cures their racism so that now they are entirely racially pure people. Your life as an employee at the company has not changed at all, right? Uh, the, the The fact that individual people around you are not compelled by racial sentiment, by racist sentiment, has no meaning for you other than its expression and behavior. And if we broaden out to the broader community, I could wave a wand tomorrow, a magic wand, that would eliminate all the racism in the hearts of all the uh, people in America, all the white people in America. Moving forward, it might be easier to go ahead and start dismantling the structures of racial inequality. But just waving the wand would not change anything, right? If you eliminated all the racist sentiment in the country tomorrow, black children would still live in, for example, environments with dramatically higher amounts of lead exposure. They'd still live in neighborhoods with dramatically higher rates of violent crime. Uh, They'd still be much more likely to uh, be in schools that have infrastructural problems or that are lacking in resources. Uh, They'd be much more likely not to be killed by a police officer. If we assume, as the Black Lives Matter uh, protesters tell us that we should, that these problems are the result of structural issues and not of individual negative sentiment. I mean, I think one of the things that I I really want to point out over this book is there is a strange contradiction in the sort of social justice space right now, which is that Racism is correctly defined or racial inequality or, or white supremacy, whatever term you want to use, is correctly defined as a structural problem, meaning it is not merely the expression of the bad thoughts or impulses of individuals. It's not the result of the low moral character of individuals. Rather, it's the product of systems that have been built up over a long time to favor the interests of one race over another. Well, that's that's correct. And I think that's the right way to, way to look at things. But the problem is, is there's also a fixation on interpersonal racism. So, for example, the uh, doctrine of microaggressions, right, which suggests that when I, as a white person, engage with a black person, I'm very likely to do things that give offense, that are minor and that don't result in you know extreme discrimination, but that make that black person feel less than uh, or somehow excluded. Those two things are just kind of cutting in completely opposite directions, right? If you think that racism is the result of these big structural uh, sort of forces and that solving them will take structural solutions, then it's very odd to write an endless number of articles about microaggressions or to, for example, police who gets cast as various voices in cartoons, uh, knowing that changing those things can't possibly change those structures. Race to Dinner is just a particularly pernicious version of this. Uh, I think Syra Rao, I think is her name, um, is the founder of it. I mean, I, th- I think that it, you know she is just a deeply shameless person. I almost admire the shamelessness with which she pursues sort of her professional role as an activist. But um, she is someone who is obsessive about the idea that white people are walking around with racist sentiment in their hearts. Well, no doubt some of them are. No doubt I have my own set of racial attitudes. But the only thing that ultimately matters is, can we liberate Black people, people of color uh, generally, from the various ways in which racial inequality is hurting them?
0: And I want to move now to speaking about the nonprofit industrial complex, as you put it. And you explore the role that nonprofits play on the American left. What is the leftist case against the nonprofit industrial complex.
1: Sure. So th- the problem with nonpro- uh, nonprofits fundamentally is that nonprofits are institutional, right? They are institutions. They have employees. They have payroll. They have budgets. Uh, they have a certain uh, tax status, uh, which simultaneously results in them spending a ton of time trying to demonstrate that they are fulfilling their charitable purpose, but also like don't still don't provide meaningful data about whether they are fulfilling their purpose. So that, that those uh, regulations result in a lot of dead weight loss in terms of the time that the uh, and money that the nonprofit is spending without actually edifying the public. The thing about institutions is that they are always fundamentally going to be self interested, and they're going to work fundamentally for self perpetuation above anything else. So. This is not inherently disqualifying, right? But uh, when we have to have institutions, right, we're, we're, as a species, we require them. But it's really important that everyone understand that if your institution's goal is to el- eradicate malaria, right, in the world, you might very well do a lot of good work to, uh, when it comes to eliminating malaria, And in fact, there are nonprofits who do a very good job at eliminating malaria or at least reducing malaria. That's never your first job. A nonprofit's first job is never its stated purpose. A nonprofit's first job is always perpetuating itself, right, defending itself, uh, making sure that it is legally impregnable, making sure that it is funded sufficiently that it can continue to survive, right? Because everyone who's working at the nonprofit has an inherent and intrinsic and an ineradicable uh, orientation towards, I need this job. I'm going to defend this institution. Um, I have said this in uh, other podcasts. I don't think it made its way into the book, but um, when I was researching, I found a, a couple of nonprofits that had been founded as being dedicated to the task of eradicating smallpox that still exist uh, smallpox was eradicated in humans, I think, in 1967, right? And yet these institutions still exist. Um, I'm sure they, I think they were founded under a previous legal regime, but anyway, they were they were charities, charitable organizations like nonprofits. So you say, well, hold on a second. You you wanted to eliminate smallpox. We eliminated smallpox. You still exist, and you're still taking donations, right? Well, they've rebranded, right? They've they've broadened their mission. Now they're sort of General, like medical sort of charities or whatever, um, and maybe they do good work, right? But it points specifically to the point to the idea that um, these institutions are never going to just eliminate their reason for being, right? They're never going to say, "Oh, you know, we solved the mission, so we don't have jobs anymore. That's too bad for us, but the the work is done." That that, that will never happen, and it never happens with anyone, right? Um, nonprofits are uh, <clears throat> often has been as many people in the nonprofit world have said, they become sort of. Um, Fancy dinner factories because they're constantly having to glad glad hand donors who just getting in the donations becomes this massive element of of the whole operation that eats more and more time uh, and money uh, and manpower because you've got to keep the money rolling in. So, you know, I have a friend who was a the head of a a major nonprofit, uh, uh, sorry, housing nonprofit. And she um, said that, you know, I mean, she ended up leaving the position. And One of the things she said is just all she was doing was working to, with the board, because you've got to keep the board happy, is another big thing, uh, and trying to find money. And that's not what she got into it for. And like I said, none of this is necessarily pernicious, right? It's just inevitable, right? The issue is that with for the left in particular, we often have goals that are sort of extra institutional. So with Black Lives Matter you know, they say uh, the poetry is in the streets, right? They say that the, the, the actual heart of the movement is in the streets during the street protests, things like that. So you had this sort of thing that was getting all the attention that was absorbing so much passion and crucially driving donations, whereas the existence of these giant street protests all across the country, expressing rage at the death of George Floyd. Those protests uh, are inherently sort of unruly animals that are not dedicated to any specific individual purpose um, and can't be sort of corralled into the interests of a given institution. Now you have these nonprofits who you have armies of uh, people who are donating to Black Lives Matter, billions and billions of dollars uh, in the first year after George Floyd's death. Most of them coming from guilt-stricken white liberals. These people want to donate, so they donate to institutions. Right? That's who gets who gets uh, donations, and so then you have this sort of the sort of like shell of institutional nonprofits around this sort of organic street protest movement, with very little in the way of meaningful communication between the two things, because we can't really communicate with a street protest. And inevitably, what happened is the money, the in, in, the sort of energy, the sort of uh, the focus drifted out to the to these nonprofits. The in, initial uh, wave of anger started to wane. The streets were a little bit less filled. You had, uh, particularly when winter rolled around uh, in 2020, it just became less physically comfortable to be in the streets. And so what was remaining of the protests by that point was, were really dying out. And so what you're left, left with is a bunch of institutions who are sort of saying, hey, I, I can bear the mantle of all these things. I'm an I'm a non I'm an anti-racist nonprofit or whatever. And suddenly you've got billions of dollars that was sort of donated in the spirit of the passion of the streets that is now in the hands of what are fundamentally bureaucrats, right? You, they're institutions who work for often very vague sort of missions. Nonprofits like to keep their mission statements vague and their goals vague because the vaguer that they are, the easier it is to demonstrate to the board and to donors and to the government that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So now you just have a sort of army of apparatchiks with a huge pile of money, not knowing where to spend it. Um, A lot of it just got sort of sucked up into the apparatus of these nonprofits never to be seen again. The actual uh, Black Lives Matter related nonprofits, the ones that are sort of the closest thing to an institutional face of Black Lives Matter, uh, have been accused of a great deal of corruption. We know about millions of dollars going missing, millions of dollars being misappropriated, et cetera. Uh, And now sort of all of a sudden, the spirit of what was happening is now just sort of been lost to the the nonprofit industrial complex. It is a self sustaining, self dealing, self interested sort of monster that sort of eats progressive change. And so, if you're if you're someone like me, who genuinely was uh, very deeply sympathetic to what was happening in the streets and to the people who were pushing it, it's June of 2020, and it seems like something world changing is happening. And then six months later. It's December of 2020, and where we are is that a bunch of only dimly related nonprofit organizations, legacy nonprofits, have gotten billions of dollars in uh, collective donations and are doing with it who knows what.
0: And this is a a good segue to talk about sort of the state of the left in America and the conversation around it. And so there's not a sharp distinction drawn typically between the activist left and the liberal left. But of course, that's a a huge distinction. And so you spend quite a bit of time in the book kind of painting a picture of the current demography and sociology of the liberal left. Walk us through your thinking on that.
1: What we have in the United States is this phenomenon of educational polarization, where once upon a time, uh, the more highly educated people were more likely to be Republicans. Largely because more highly educated people make more money and people who make more money tend to favor conservative economic policies because they want to be taxed less and they want less regulation on their uh, on their businesses. That starts to change. The new left in the 1960s is uh, largely a, uh, a university movement. It stems from things like the Berkeley free speech movement. Universities are in many ways natural places for people to become radicalized. And so over the course of the second half of the 20th century, a Republican advantage among college-educated voters shrinks until it's gone by the millennium. So by the time George Bush is voting against Al Gore, there isn't a clear preference for college-educated voters either way, and then it swings in the opposite direction, right? A set of radical ideas stemming from English departments and critical geography departments and cultural studies departments and women's studies departments, all these sort of departments that are sort of regarded as sort of irrelevant and powerless. In fact, their ideas colonized the university system um, in a very brief period. Uh, It's a remarkable uh, sort of historical artifact about while everyone's talking about are the humanities dead, they were busily just sort of establishing their ideology as the ideology of American institutions. So now you have this new type of voter who is someone who is, went to a, uh, went to college at least. These people that I'm talking about are also highly disproportionately likely to have attended an elite college. So I think that one thing that many people don't understand is Attending a competitive college, a college that is in any sense hard to get into, is uh, very rare in American life. Okay? The vast majority of American uh, college educated people never even applied to a school that rejects more students than it accepts. Okay? Some of the absolute most exclusive schools have uh, acceptance rates that are higher than you might think. I would look, I was talking to someone from North Carolina State recently, North Carolina State, I don't know if people understand this. It's one of the uh, definitely uh, the top 20 to 15% most competitive uh, American public educational institutions. And yet they still admit 40% of the students who apply, right? So going to a school that that is competitive, that is elite, that is difficult to get into is just rare in and of itself. The people that I'm talking about are disproportionately drawn from uh, their number, <laughs> then there's even an even smaller set which are dr- driven from the sort of the uh, the Ivy Plus institutions, which is the Ivy League institutions in Stanford and University of Chicago and Duke and these uh these organi- these sort of schools produce graduates who have a very common sort of ideological profile. Because they've gone through uh, these class after class that takes as its sort of assumed vision of the world, uh, what was once a fairly radical take on on race and gender, etc. But these people are going to these schools because they're meritocrats, right? These are people who want to use their educational advantages, use the fact that they're unusually intelligent or at least unusually academically inclined, uh, and leverage that for uh, high-paying jobs, high-status jobs. So, the nonprofits we were just talking about are a major employer for this kind of person, right? And those jobs tend to be fiercely competitive. Uh, and we know that in the better resourced nonprofits, there's a dramatic overrepresentation of Ivy League plus schools. There's a dramatic overrepresentation of Ivy League plus schools in publishing. There's a, a dramatic overrepresentation of Ivy League plus schools in media. There's a, a dramatic overrepresentation in the university system. And so you have these people who have filtered out into what is the messaging apparatus of American life, right? The, the thing that creates our, our present day ideology and it sort of dictates who we are and the cultural conversation that we have. But again, there's a fundamental sort of tension in this sort of left liberal, uh, what, what some people call rad lib ethos, which is they are advocating sort of deeply egalitarian perspectives on politics while living lives that are inherently elite and that are restricted to the very few, right? These are people who live in brownstone, Brooklyn neighborhoods. They may not be able to afford their own brownstone now, but they are aspirationally working for that, right? These are people who live in trendy neighborhoods in Los Angeles. These are people who live in San Francisco. These are people who live in, let's say Andersonville in Chicago enclaves that are known for having highly educated white uh, residents who, uh, alongside, you know, a more sort of urban diversity, but uh, who are highly, highly educated, who speak in a very sort of particular vocabulary that is inflected with this reading Gloria Anzaldua in college, right? Reading bell hooks in college, uh, knowing what uh, intersectionality is being able to debate uh, various differences between second and third wave feminism. In other words, they live with these sort of intellectual structures that most people don't, but again, they want to make money and have a have a happy life and be rich too. And that necess- isn't necessarily wrong, right? There's nothing wrong with that calling for a more egalitarian system while you try to get your own sort of thing, but it leads to these inherent contradictions in how they talk about other people's opportunity in their own. And in the book, the way that I talk about this is just to sort of contrast how they talk to their own children with how they speak about black children. Right. So one of the things that happened during the sort of 2020 summer and the George Floyd moment was that there's a constant sort of insistence by liberals to say, well, you can't uh, you can't blame anyone for. Uh, rioting because that's just the sort of the uh the environment in which they've been raised and the sort of their sort of sense of rage bubbling up inside of them and they can't they can't control that and they can't choose that. Meanwhile, not only would they never permit their children to riot, right they would never permit their child to not attend piano lessons, right they would never permit their child to not do their homework the first thing when they come home, right they look at black kids who, Skip school and end up dropping out of high school, and that's all environment, right? They insist that that has got nothing to do with any individual choices on the part of those black uh, children. But the idea of their own kids dropping out of high school is just totally—it's so outside of the realm of the possible that they don't even have to think about, it, right? Because they've spent their whole life inculcating in these in their children the sense that their choices matter. And so there's just a direct sort of contradiction where they are advocating uh, a worldview that says that none of us can really control anything that happens to us and that we can't blame anyone who does anything. That if someone is a shoplifter, that is through no choice of their own. That if someone drops out of school, that's through no choice of their own. If they're blowing off their homework or their tutoring, it's through no choice of their own. But with their children, they are inculcating... A ethic of just extreme personal responsibility, insisting to them that their choices always matter, demanding that they always make the best choice, and trying to make the kids believe that they have the right to make these choices, so that they see themselves as sort of
0: agents in the universe. I was just so glad to read that part in the book about the internal locus of control versus the external locus of control. And one of the things I thought about Freddie is, is just with mental health. you know i've dealt with mental health i know you have too and mm-hmm. in terms of dealing with depression and anxiety i i did not get well until i really embraced this idea of agency mm-hmm. and so the idea of you know not not articulating that in the culture seems really strange to me can you talk a little bit about that in the mental health context
1: there's a woman in the 1990s named joyce brown and she was the kind of homeless person who becomes a sort of a local celebrity i believe she was in manhattan i think lower manhattan and Joyce Brown was schizophrenic. Um she was a black woman. She was fond of running into traffic and nearly got killed many times. Uh, she would soil herself very often. She was also notoriously, you know, quote unquote racist against black men despite being black herself. She would shout the n-word at them and chase them around and accuse them of being, you know, rapists and thugs, etc. Uh, Joyce Brown, because of all this instability, was involuntarily committed in the New York City mental health system. She was able to procure a uh, lawyer from the New York uh, State uh, ACLU to spring her out. And this became kind of a a, sort of like a cause celeb for a lot of people. And people talked about agency and respecting uh, mentally ill people's autonomy and their right to choose. Uh, And the ACLU was the ACLU, so they did as the ACLU did, and there was a whole cadre of people who sort of cheered this on, and she was, in fact, freed from involuntary commitment by a judge. There was, uh, however, a couple people who were deeply opposed to her being freed, and that was Joyce Brown's sisters. These were the people who knew her the longest and loved her the most, And they were adamantly opposed to her being freed from involuntary commitment because she was clearly so desperately ill. And they had a argument that I've uh, thought about for a very long time, which is they said that the ACLU and the judge who released Joyce Brown were racist. And their logic was that they were willing to permit a, a sort of living conditions for a black woman that they would never permit for some a member of their own family. In other words, that the fact that these people could think that it was somehow freeing for Joyce Brown to live on the streets and to you know, defecate in her pants and to run into traffic, et cetera, was an artifact of racism, which I, which I think is correct. And time would, in fact, prove uh, that. Joyce Brown's sisters uh, were right. The ACLU was wrong. She gave a, they arranged for her to give a talk at Harvard immediately after she was sprung from an involuntary commitment. Tons of people came. There were photo ops. There was a dinner. Everyone talked about how brave she was. Two weeks later, she was living on the street again and using heroin again. Two weeks later. Um, and she spent the rest of her life. In and out of treatment, periodically addicted to heroin uh, until she died at like 57 because it's not healthy to live on the streets. The New York ACLU has never addressed that sense or apologized or anything. So I think that agency and responsibility are complicated issues in mental health, but also in politics and in how we view the world. I have said over and over again that it's just really complicated to sort of define who is responsible for what in a mental illness context. I also think it's really hard to define who was responsible for what in the context of identity-based oppression, like with racial inequality. The problem is, is nobody wants to talk about it as if it's complicated, right? They want everything to be easy. And so when, you know, you look at a place like San Francisco and you have stores closing because they're just constantly having shoplifting and the sort of current liberal uh, notion that you simply cannot at any point suggest That people shoplifting is anything less than totally valid and like a blow struck against uh, capitalism is the kind of simplistic uh, nonsense that unfortunately um, it's hard to get away from right now.
0: I just want to read another really amazing quote from the book to sort of cap that off. And you you say, so what we're left with when we consider the people who create our liberal narratives are strivers who question the value of striving, affluent critics of affluence whose behaviors deepen economic inequality, and white people who are arch critics of whiteness. All political groups have their own internal tensions and petty hypocrisies, but the liberal intelligentsia is at war with itself. I want to I want to turn now what what an amazing way to put it. I want to turn now to this issue of how the left functions with this sort of intersectional perspective and how it kind of interacts with minorities. And so the left coalition is currently broken up into many different identity groups. You point out this Is not great for mass solidarity which you need to enact real change an interesting example you give of this is the disdaining of cisgender white gay men walk me through your observations on that
1: sure so um for a long time uh the fact that being gay was and still is in many parts of the world in and of itself sort of a a life or death threat against you the fact that you could go through the, to, to some place and be perceived to be gay and be at immediate risk of losing your life right help to sort of create the conditions under which gay people were associated with the sort of countercultural identity so one of the things that is a sort of a very weird thread to pick at in sort of contemporary notions of uh, difference and oppression etc is, Many of these uh, countercultures were countercultural merely because the dominant culture rejected them and in many cases threatened them. Uh, And what happened is that in a very short order in American life, above board official homophobia was largely dispensed with. Now, I wanna be clear, there's still plenty of homophobia under the surface and there's still plenty of people who have homophobic intent, uh, but to a very large extent, Legally, the legal structures of uh, of homophobia have been dismantled uh, in very short order. So in 2004, John Kerry was defeated by George W. Bush. And one of the primary reasons why is that Karl Rove had used gay marriage as a wedge issue to attack John Kerry. Uh, and it was so effective that George Bush ended up winning fairly easily uh, in a contest in which he had some real uh, vulnerabilities. By 2015, gay marriage is legal everywhere in the United States. Uh, and just this past year, it's now been established as a legal federal right, not just with, by a Supreme Court decision, but by law, by act of Congress. And what has happened, to the dismay of many people, is that as be- being gay has become less dangerous, and I do think for the record that like progress has happened and people are less homophobic and that's good, I know nobody ever wants to acknowledge any progress in anything ever, but... I just think the country is much less homophobic than it was when I was a teenager. Now that that's happened, if being gay in and of itself does not carry a sort of radical connotation. And there is a critique, which is true in many cases, that many gay men and women, although primarily the focus is on gay men, they got gay marriage. And the sort of broader establishment of we just can't be legally, forwardly homophobic in a way in the way that we were. And once that was established, they sort of stopped being radical, right? In other words, that they pursued politics only until it sort of benefited them in the way that they wanted to. And then they just became sort of, you know, you know, not Republicans, but just sort of like low effort Obama, Obama liberals. I do think that that happened for many people. I also think that that's kind of like just how politics works, right? People engage in politics out of self-interest. The sort of gay rights movement had a very obvious policy ask, which was a a great advantage that they had, which is legalize our our unions, our our marriages. They got it. And so a lot of people sort of effectively de-radicalized. I think you can sort of say, I wish that you would have stayed politically engaged more. I wish that you would have kept going to meetings, I wish you would have kept donating to things. And that's fair. But ultimately, the, th- the thing about being gay is like you don't choose it. And so it was always weird to assume that any that that you know any random gay person was necessarily going to be a radical, right? And so what's happened now is the LGBTQ movement, right, has superseded the gay rights movement. uh, And there's more of a focus on things like trans rights, which to me makes a lot of sense, certainly uh, in the uh, way that trans people remain a uh, very vulnerable population and a a flashpoint in the culture wars. But what has come with that for for a lot of people is a disdaining of of white gay men as sort of uh, a conservative force, in what was, who were once sort of like the forefront of American radicalism, uh, uh, LGBTQ radicalism. So for example, uh, who threw the first brick at Stonewall? Uh, you know, the Stonewall riot, which many people believe mark as like the beginning of the modern gay rights movement, LGBTQ movement. I've written a piece in which I say like, it, it just doesn't matter who threw the first brick. Like the whole thing about left movements is they're collectivists and that kind of individual credit just doesn't make a lot of sense based on who we are, but people are very invested in that. And many people say it was a trans woman of color and other people say there's no historical evidence for that, but there's like a deep desire, right. To sort of write white gay men out of the story of LGBTQ radicalism, um, which if nothing else demonstrates that, you know, these these coalitions are always sort of provisional on events. I mean, I I've said before, the day that we have true racial equality in this country, right, when we tear down all of the vestiges of white supremacy and, and racial inequality, um, is the day that you know black people will cease to be a meaningfully like politically definable block at all, right? In other words, if once we achieve equality, there's no reason to expect that for there to be such a thing as a black political identity anymore, because those things only exist in relief with the oppression.
0: And this sort of attitude that you're describing comes along with an attitude towards minorities, which is paternalistic, sometimes fetishistic, often very awkward. Um, You write about a benevolent, quietly condescending love for minority identities, the black, the brown, the gay, the transgender, the Muslim, the disabled. And what you're arguing for, I want to turn now to some of the recommendations you make at the end of this book, which I think are really powerful. So one of the things you're arguing for here is a class Focused organizing on the left. What does that look like in practice? And how does it combat what we've what we've just been talking about?
1: Sure. I mean, I think the first thing to say, like the sort of like the preemptive thing to say, is like, again, politics is about self-interest, right? That's not me being an Ayn Rand disciple. That is, in fact, something that, among other people, Karl Marx said directly, right? Karl Marx, who's the father of a famously sort of collectivist political philosophy, he said just straight up. People get involved politically to the degree that it affects them and helps them. And that's just how it should be. It's how it has to be. Uh, and so class-based political organizing means uh, organizing people according to the similarity in their economic need, right? Rather than by saying, okay, we're going to organize all everybody by race or according to their gender identity or something like that, right? And there's uh, several different reasons for that. I am kind of old school. And then I think that the whole point is to reach across difference and to break bread with people who aren't like you and to find racial harmony and to find equal respect for every one of every sexual identity and gender identity, etc. Like I think that that's like a really groovy uh, sort of goal to have, but it also has the benefit of that. It has the weight of numbers, right? There's no identity based group that we could appeal to. That has the kind of numbers that, like, people who are worried about paying the rent next month, for example, right? Even if we looked at women, right? Well, 44% of women voted for Trump in 2016. 44% of women who voted voted for Trump in 2016. Women are often thrown into these coalitions sort of uh, uh, assumptively, but they've never been a coherent voting bloc. And even then, we know that, for example, if we want to organize around the 99 percent or versus the one percent, well, there's a numbers advantage there, right? And there's a lot of different ways that you can slice the apple, but the fundamental observation is just that, like, there is power in the numbers of people who are financially uh, insecure, who are underpaid, who are exploited by their bosses, etc. I would argue that uh, you can look at the American labor movement. The American labor movement did not produce racial harmony. In major uh, American unions, there was often a history of tension between Black and white members, or Black and Hispanic and white or whatever, like United Auto Workers, for example. However, even if they didn't sit together at lunch, and even if they weren't coming uh, over to each other's places for a cookout, they would, when time came to organize and bargain collectively to drive up their wages, by threatening to withdraw their labor power, they were able to do so as a group and doing so earned them middle-class lifestyles without college degrees. Uh, And of course, famously, that way of life collapsed with globalization. And so that is to me is the model. I would love it if everybody would come together and live in racial harmony. But if we can't do that, let's at least recognize that people who make $35,000 a year are more alike even if they're of different races then they are like billionaires who are white like them or black like them
0: and just two last points before we close the first is you also urge the left to begin speaking in plain language again or as you put it talk like human beings again this is something i've talked about a lot on this podcast in a journalistic context why is that so important
1: fundamentally one of the deep, deepest problems that any political movement has is a divide between what is advances you in the in-group and what helps you to reach out to the out-group. So the sort of signaling value of elite academic language is a perfect example. If I go out into the world and I start talking to them about uh, wanting to see the intersectional realities uh, and the connections between Black bodies in the heteronormative space, right? People don't know what that is. And so it directly hinders my ability to uh, reach out and broaden the coalition. But if I'm on media Twitter and everybody else, uh, all of my peers in that space are also overeducated people who went to elite colleges, who know who bell hooks is, who uh, are able to tell you all kinds of tumblers, vocabulary words that derive from a sort of like mangle of academic pol- political work that... For the record, they haven't read. That helps you within that social world. In other words, it says, I'm one of you, right? And the problem is, this has always potentially been an issue, right? There is a very long Marxist tradition of talking about, you know, not talking about the dialectic when you go to a factory to try to organize it, because talking about the dialectic does not help you in that that context. But this has been deeply, deeply exacerbated by the internet. Uh, and the problem is, is that there's been a collapse in the difference between inside and outside space. So at one spot at a time, I mean, if you were literally in the faculty lounge, right, then you could assume that everybody around you knew the terms that you were using. But you also knew that other people weren't listening in. Now, a lot of people treat Twitter as the faculty lounge, right? They treat TikTok as the faculty lounge, and so other people are seeing them. Their words aren't making much sense, but they are signaling to the people who are within their social milieu, and that's just a huge problem. And you just you have to be disciplined about speaking like a normal human being when it comes to spreading your political message.
0: And and lastly, Freddie, one of the things you say at the end of the book is is we should not be afraid to call nonsense nonsense. One of the examples that you raise of progressive absurdity is disability activists upset at the phrase, I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think it's so important to call out this nonsense when we see it?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, like that, I, I picked that example because I, you know, look, I got a, a humanities uh, PhD in the mid 2010s, okay? Like I I was in this stuff. And then I worked in academia for four years after that. Um, I grew up in academia, you know, these things are not exaggerations, right? Like you can say that there's not a lot of people who feel that way. And that's true. But prominent people who have large platforms believe in this sort of thing. And so, for example, uh, I didn't go public with my own mental illness until I think 2015, in grad school, prior to that happening, I had used the word, I had said that something was crazy in a class, and a fellow student, who I still don't know who it was, made a complaint to the professor saying that saying crazy is ableist language, and I was not yet in a position where I was comfortable saying, you know, I might have some right to be able to use this language. Um, it's just never, that's just not how human beings work. Right. Like that just doesn't make any any sense when you say, for example, there was a a controversy at a college where student activists were mad that the school was serving banh mi because they said that serving banh mi is cultural appropriation of Vietnamese people Um, not seeming to understand that banh mi is made with French baguette because it is a hybrid cuisine. That's just something that normal people are going to say, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, what, what? what is this? Like, it's just so foreign to people's fundamental sense of what's, of what's moral or what isn't. When, for example, the age gap discourse, which, you know, in TikTok has gotten to the point where if you, if you're within a year of each other, but the gap is too large within a year of each other, they will often say that that is an inappropriate relationship. That you know, it is it is in some in some circles now. It is just absolutely certain that if a nineteen-year-old uh, dates a seventeen-year-old, that nineteen-year-old is definitionally a rapist because they're far too m- mature to be able to date a nineteen-year-old, a seventeen-year-old. But then you flip it around, and if a twenty-one-year-old dates that same nineteen-year-old, then the twenty-one-year-old's the rapist because nineteen-year-old's not nearly mature enough to be, you know. These sort of things are just totally contrary to the, the lived moral universe of people who are the people we're trying to reach. And it's not like the principles are what's at stake here. I think almost anyone would say a 25-year-old dating a 15-year-old is inappropriate at the very least, and you shouldn't do that, right? When you make it a 19-year-old and an 18-year-old is an inappropriate relationship, that's when you lose people, Right? Anybody, I think, uh, well, not anybody, but most people would say that if you use words like retarded to describe someone in a derisive way, that's offensive, right? If you say, boy, this is crazy, you're just using human language. And I just, I think that like these distinctions are not hard to parse. Everybody knows what's actually sort of an, an issue of, of real organic morality. And it's time to stop pretending like we can't make these distinctions,
0: Well, Freddie, I think this is a brilliant book. And above all, it's just really, really useful for helping us to understand the moment that we're in right now and and where we go from here. So thank you for this book and thank you for coming on today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Tara.
0: Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.